church as we begin our time of worship today it's great to see you here let's stand together and sing worthy of worship
exalted, 296. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted forever, exalted and I will praise Him. This morning, and can remember very well, maybe even vividly, uh, our own graduations. Amen. Graduations from high school, graduations from college, uh, maybe even graduations from specialized trainings or whatever. And here at First Baptist Church, we rejoice in the fact that we have uh, that we can celebrate several graduations of our young people uh, this week. Uh, many of them graduated this weekend, and uh, and so in spite of that. Um, some of them are not here, and, um, but we want to celebrate as a church body uh, the, the accomplishments of their graduation. Um, the first three are going to be from college, um, and, uh, and I don't know if these names are in any specific order. We'll see as they pop up, but uh, the first one uh, is Joseph Pierce Kaiser, the son of Jody and Tracy Kaiser. Pierce is going to be graduating from the University of Tennessee, where he has already graduated from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville with a Bachelor's of Science in Supply Chain Management. What a great accomplishment for Pierce. The second one is Wilson Monroe Harris, the son of Amy Harris. Uh, Wilson is going to be graduating from the University of Tennessee or has graduated from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville with a Bachelor's of Science in Marketing. Next, we have uh, Meg, Megan Autry Kaiser, daughter of Jason Kaiser, who's going to be graduating or is graduating, has graduated from, this is the third time I've done that, you'd think I'd get it right, from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville with a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. We also have Tristan Marler, son of Bobby and Tamara, who's graduated this past weekend from high school at O'Brien County Central High School, graduated with his high school diploma. And then last but not least, we have my daughter, Katie Lounsdale, who's graduating from high school from Home Life Academy 
Um, and, uh, and we, of course, we spent yesterday here at the church. We held their graduation services here at this church. And, um, and y'all, I, I, I cried and bawled more than any man has ever cried in front of a group of people in my entire life. I told myself beforehand that I was a professional, that I can do this, and, that, and it wasn't going to be a problem. And in and, and the graduation ceremonies that we, that we graduate with, is the parents do the speaking. And that's probably the worst idea you could probably come up with. As, uh, as I was fine until I turned around and looked at her and my wife, and then I started crying. But what a celebration it is for these young people. What an opportunity to be able to graduate from both college and from high school and achieve these kinds of successes. Um, it goes without saying that in our world today that these, these accomplishments do give huge advantages um, in success and opportunity in the future. And as a church, uh, as uh, we serve a God of all knowledge and wisdom, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, uh, we rejoice for these young people as well. We partner with the families and we come up alongside them and we, as the Bible says, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, Since Katie is actually with us this morning, I'm going to ask her to come up here. I would like to present to her a Bible on behalf of the church uh, in celebration of uh, her graduation. Um, she, she handles these public events really well. As, as, she's, as she's, she's going to be graduating, or she has graduated from high school, she's going to be going to UT Martin and, um, and going to study music. And uh, she's super excited, and, and uh, we are excited for her. And uh, Katie, I just wanted to present this Bible to you on behalf of the church, not just as your dad or your father, but as a pastor um, and I know on behalf of your mother as well, we're proud of you. And uh, we're excited about what the Lord has for you in the future. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I got, yeah. So um, I, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm grateful as the pastor to be able to, to share these, these, these good news, this, this opportunity to rejoice together. Um, and so I'd like to offer a prayer just on, on, over the body and upon these graduates and uh, so if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray for us. Father, we are, we are so grateful, uh, Father, as we come into the sanctuary, to, that we can worship a God who is worthy of our worship, who's, who's faithful and, and trustworthy, and God who gives us the abilities and the talents that, that you do uh, for the work of the kingdom. Father, you have given to us just an opportunity this morning to celebrate these wonderful accomplishments whether it's high school graduation or college graduation, Lord, our hearts are, are, are full of joy for the, the potential future that these students have. Father, the, the, student, the, the, the futures that, that, that aren't even known yet in many ways to them, but are eternally known to you. So, Father, I pray that you guide their paths. I pray that you, that you illuminate their dreams and their goals and that you empower them to achieve them to your glory. Uh, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to watch them grow, uh, Father, to raise them, and, uh, and then to turn them loose in your care. Uh, Father, what a, what a wonderful privilege it is to celebrate these kinds of, of, these, these kinds of accomplishments. And as First Baptist Church joins together in, in, this, in this celebration, Father, we just thank you uh, for, for such an occasion. Lord, as we gather on this Lord's Day to celebrate and worship you, 
Um, we thank you for the privilege of our brothers and sisters in Christ and getting into worship with them here at this church and for the ministry that you've, that you've given to us, entrusted to us for the kingdom's sake. Father, bless us. Bless our hour of worship. Bless our time together. And we pray this in Christ's name. And amen. Just the words. Listen to the words. <clears throat> I can't take a heart that's broken, make it over again. But I know a man who can. I can't take a soul that's sin sick, make it white as snow. But I know a man who can. Amen. Thank you, Miss Tammy. Appreciate that worship, that worship uh, through the solo. This morning, as we read from God's Word, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, this verse came to mind this past week when I was uh, preparing for Katie's graduation. And 
Um, and it's, it's this part of it, the heart of it anyway, is, has, is kind of a thesis, you know. And it was a challenge or a charge that we, Mandy and I gave to Katie yesterday about, about letting the Lord uh, guide our paths. Um, and from this section of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, because that's where we are in their sermon series, comes this passage of Scripture, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. Solomon says this, My son, do not forget my law. But let your heart, or let your heart rather, keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Amen, church. What a wonderful reminder from Solomon this morning about the wisdom of following the Lord. So may the word of God be read in the house of God this morning. All right, amen. Go ahead and be turning with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to read verses 16 through 19. Now the comment was said to me as I uh, was walking around this morning shaking hands that the um, the concern uh, has arisen for the, uh, no, I, I'm kidding. I won't, I, won't, I won't look at who is uh, aggravating me about this, but the bulletin, the, the outline looked really long this morning, especially despite the fact that we have a meal afterwards, right? And, and, and who wants, to, uh, who wants to, to wait, you know, longer than uh, normal to, uh, to do that? Anyway, I had, a, I had a good laugh this morning before service. I promise you these, these points will be meaningful. They'll be, they'll be, we'll, we'll move through them rather quickly um, because I, I just want to make one a point about each one of these things that we find in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Now, to, to catch everyone up, we are, we are in sermon 3 of a sermon series called Uncommon Sense, uh, working through the book of Proverbs to capture nuggets of wisdom that, that Solomon gives to us in uh, our practical, everyday lives. Uh, today we find ourselves looking at what are po- popularly coined the seven deadly sins. Uh, in a scriptural, more biblical accuracy, they are the seven abominations of God. And, uh, and so that, that's, maybe that sounds so harsh, so they've lightened it to say deadly. But nonetheless, the, the point is still there. So let's stand together and let's read these verses of scripture. And uh, let's honor the word um, as we read them by standing Solomon says this, verse 16 of chapter 6. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this word. Father, I pray that, that as your word has now just been read, uh, God, that our hearts are just immediately drawn closer to you through the reading of it. Father, that it is, gl- that it is glorified, that it is blessed, and Father, that it gives to us uh, such a blessing this morning 
that, uh, that we won't be the same after hearing it. So bless us now in the reading of your word. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So as is common to mankind, we often forget sometimes uh, the, the uh, important things that God has revealed to us through his word. For the sake of the sermon today, we find ourselves looking at seven things that God hates because they are an abomination to him. Now, before we can actually look at these things individually, we must understand the context of what that even means. Why are they an abomination? What is an abomination to God? Well, Solomon uses the Hebrew word here that has several different meanings, but, but in this particular meaning, an abomination is a particular sort of wickedness that goes against God's original or natural design for mankind. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you still. Well, let me give you an example from Scripture about what that means. In, in Scripture, one of the more popular uh, abominations that we see, especially from the Old Testament, is that of same-sex sin. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 says, You, as in a man, shall not lie with another male as with a woman. It is an abomination to God. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the same-sex sin, the abomination is particularly wicked because it goes against God's natural design for male and female. It goes against God's original ideal, his original design for the species, and even sociological constructs. Same-sex sin, if you will, defies all of these things and undoes the will of God's design. Thus... It is an abomination to him. Amen? It's pretty simple in, 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 its, uh, in its understanding. And understanding that is kind of the backdrop for our text today. Understanding what abominations are to God and why they are so egregious to him is, is, is to understand these seven things. Because they hold a particular place in a world, in our world rather, that seeks to undermine God's ideal for mankind. These seven things are universal to all people, but they are specifically wicked in that they, they, they undermine the design that God intended for us from the beginning. Now, it's another important thing to note before we start into, this, into these seven things that Solomon uses the word hates. Seven things, or six things that God hates, yes, seven or an abomination to him. He literally specifically uses the word hate. Now, I know oftentimes in our Christian, especially in our modern Christian understanding, we don't like to think of God hating anything, but that God is love and that he loves everything and that he loves everybody and all of those kinds of things. And that's, that's partially true, but it's not entirely true because there are things that God hates. Sin is one of those things. Thus, when we have reasons or we have understandings that God hates things, we must be vigilant of them in our lives. Okay? If God hates these things, if God hates sin, then we have to be vigilant not to allow those things to have a place in our lives, lest we fall into their snare. The first one is pride. Verse 17, a proud Look, and, I, and my goal in these, these points is to give you one nugget of wisdom and then explain to you why God hates these things, okay? In, in this, this, this pride, the, the, the one thing that I'd like to, to, to draw your attention to is that pride is the ultimate anti-God sin. If, if you want to compare it to a New Testament 
concept. It's the ultimate antichrist sin. Pride is the sin that, that, that felled the anointed cherub, Lucifer. It's the, it's the sin of pride that convinced Lucifer that he could lead a third of heaven's angels in rebellion against God. It was pride that convinced Lucifer that he could be God. It was pride that got him expelled from heaven's holiness and cast to the earth in shame. Now, while on the earth, Lucifer has not stopped convincing humans that they can too live in rebellion against God. He continues to convince them that they can be little gods, that they can be gods of their own imaginations, they can be God of their own world. And so he never ceases to convince humanity that they can build a world apart from God's original natural design. So we have stories in Scripture like the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, the fall. We have stories like the Tower of Babel, where they tried to build a temple that would reach the heavens, that they could be like God. The ultimate anti-God cries that came from Babel were one of rebellion. They were one of pride. Pride is the ultimate state of anti-God exaltation in the heart. It is the antithesis of humility. The very thing that God calls Christians to be is humble in spirit. Pride is the ultimate antithesis of that. It is the opposite of obedience. It is the enemy of self-awareness. When we have elevated ourselves to such a state of pride, we begin to get ourselves into trouble because God hates pride because it destroys our fellowship with him. Okay, That's why pride is such a big deal. That's why, that's why uh, uh, Christians and, and especially leaders in the church should always learn to humble themselves and, and, to, and to exhort others around them because if not, then they, they don't live in a proper fellowship with God. It only makes sense to conclude that if our hearts are full of pride and arrogance, then our fellowship with God is destroyed. Because we cannot entertain the presence of the divine when we have convinced ourselves that we are him. We can't enjoy his fellowship when, 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 we, when we, we, well, rather he can't rather sit on the throne of our hearts if we have exalted ourselves to his throne in heaven. We can't submit to God's will if our will overrides his at every turn. Pride is that sin. Pride is what disfellowships us from the presence of God. And, and I'll have to say, pride is one, of, it's, it's, it's one of the top sins of Scripture. Uh, it's one of the most common sins even today that we have this, this whole movement of, 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 of proud uh, sentiment and, 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 and animosity toward God um, because it lives in disfellowship with him. The next thing is a lying tongue. See, I told you I'd move to him quickly. Thought I was making that up, didn't you? Be honest. Some of your stomachs are already growling, and he's got, well, six more to go. Lying. Lying is denying the power of the truth. 
All right? And I know we, we know lying to be a lot of things. I know we, uh, we know it practically. We are aware of it uh, presently in our lives. But really, what is lying but denying the power of the truth? Okay? And, and I want to specifically focus on the power of it. Because as we look at lying and its, and its expressions and its many forms, the underlying principle is that, that lying undermines the authority, the power of the established truth. Truth, by its very nature, is rooted in three things. Nature, or creation, right? Like the laws of, nat- uh, of nature. You can't, you can't undo those laws. They're there. Right? Gravity is there. You can't, you can't undo it. It's, it's established truth. You have God's written decrees, or what we call the Word of God, the spoken, the written Word of God. That's truth. And then we have the revealed Word of truth, Jesus Christ himself. And in those three capacities lies all of the truth, the fullness of what God has told us is true. Okay, and if we have any questions about whether it's whether something's true or whether it's false, we can go to one of those three areas and find the answers. We can either go to nature and we can look at its construct and its design or we can go to God's word or we can go to the person of Christ himself. Because of these three areas. Rather, because these three areas are the way God has chosen to establish truth, truth, they are authoritative. Not us. We don't get to determine what is truth. Right? Uh, Pilate, almost echoing unanimously for all of humanity at the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, he says, what is truth? They are authoritative because they are established in the word of God, in the person of God, and in his creation. When we lie, we empty one of those three things of their authority. When we lie, We are saying in a word that there is another form of truth, one that is only authoritative based on our own subjective ideas concerning the matter. Now, this is very common today. We have lots of different forms of truth now. Well, what what may be true for you is uh, maybe not true for me. I, I have my own truth. Okay, based on what authority? Who who determined that you're right and that's wrong? Who gets to say that? Okay, because if it's true, it has to have a th- authority under it. It has to have power to it. Just because you say it's true doesn't make it true. Amen? And this is especially a, a good lesson for our young people because, because we live in a world that's undermining truth. And they're using the sciences and they're using technology and they're even using theology to undermine those sources of truth. We live in a world now that that, that we don't know whether natural law is actually confirmed or true based on what a professor might say or what a scientist or what we have today are experts. We don't know whether the earth was actually created by God or came about through millions of years of evolution. We don't know. Well, we do. My wife gave me that nod, and I knew that I had to clear that up because we do know. I'm being, of course rhetorical, but we have theologies that are now undermining the authority of God's word. People are just imagining all kinds of people sit in ivory towers all the time in offices and they just conjure up stuff because they're bored. 
And so we don't know, even in, 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 even in the theological expressions of the word of God. If Jesus were here himself, they would argue with him. So our young people are under attack, constant attack on the authority of truth. Lying empties those sources of truth of their power and, uh, and, and establishes another form of truth over them. Since lying in and of itself rejects the authority of truth, it thus attempts to empty it of its power. Without the power of the truth, lies then are allowed to be perpetuated. And when lies are allowed to be perpetuated, they bring emptiness, brokenness, and hopelessness. And I would argue that's why most of our people live in a state of anxiety and depression and things today because they are not firmly rooted in the truth. The truth gives you that stability. It gives you that that foundation to live a life of wholeness and wellness and hope. God hates lying because it destroys our relationships with others. Pride destroys our relationship with God. Lying destroys it with other people. The truth is that the only thing that allows relationships to build and grow and blossom is the truth. All right, it's placed between parents and children, right? Remember the very first time your children lied to you? Remember how that went? Or if you need some help with that, remember the last time you lied to your parents? Remember how well that went? Happens all the time in the parent-child relationship. It takes place between husbands and wives. It takes place between workers and their employees, citizens and their governments, and neighbors and their friends. When honesty and integrity are allowed to be transparent between individuals, then healthy relationships prosper. Lying tears all of that down. Right? It tears honesty down. It tears integrity down. It tears transparency down. And then no relationship can prosper where lying is present. This is especially true first in our relationship with God, and it works itself all the way down to our friends. It only makes sense that our relationship with others hinge on the truth. The third is murder. Hands that shed innocent blood specifically. I mean, it's murder in its fullness. But the shedding of innocent blood is a practice of predatory power. And I know that sounds really way up there. But shedding innocent blood is a practice of predatory power. People who seek the innocent or the lives of the innocent, the blood of the innocent, engage in a predatory practice that has been around since the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve. It was present when Cain killed Abel. Amen? This predatory practice has been around ever since. Evil in its rawest form seems to have an insatiable appetite to target innocent people to fulfill their lust for power. I mean, we hear stories all the time of people who are hunted as prey for the simple reason that the predator himself or herself wants to fulfill a demonic urge to practice murder. We have TV shows that now make lots of ratings, big ratings about this phenomenon. 
Now, to me, it's an incomprehensible thing. I can't understand or fathom why an individual would hunt someone's innocence just for the sake of being a predator, but individuals practice it. They do all the time. Individuals practice it. Groups that are bent on hate practice it. And even leaders and governments and nations practice this, this, uh, this behavior. In fact, there seems to be a strong connection in history to the power that these leaders and these governments and these nations seek to the number of innocent lives that get caught up in the passion to pursue that power. In a word, the more power they seek, the more innocent people that die. This has been true in governments across the world. God hates the shedding of innocent blood because it destroys the Imago Dei. The image of God in humans. God hates this predatory practice because it destroys the very image of God that was hardwired into us in Genesis chapter 1. Every human when the breath of life was breathed into Adam, received God's image upon them. In fact, the image of God is what makes humans distinct from the rest of creation. All humans bear the likeness of their creator. Thus, all human life has value, even unborn human life. Because this seems to be where the, the shedding of innocent blood seems to be the most predatory, is in the practice of abortion. Doesn't matter about skin color, doesn't matter about socioeconomic status, doesn't matter about nationality or creed. All human life is valued by God because it bears his image. This Imago Day is the one part that gives human life intrinsic value. I know oftentimes we attribute value, human value, especially to money, to fame, power position, but is that what makes human life valuable? I mean, some people would say yes. They would say that that celebrity or that that world leader or that that rich person or whatever has more value than does this homeless person who's strung out on drugs that lives on the side of the road. They would say that that life has more intrinsic value. But that's just not true. The Imago Dei is not established in those qualities. This Imago Dei is the part of humanity, listen to me, that is specifically innocent. Amen? Because when we were created in the garden, we were created with purity and with innocence. In fact, Adam and Eve walked around the garden for all practical purposes with no clothes on, and they didn't even know it. It wasn't until they sinned and they violated the Imago Dei that innocence inside of them that they realized they were naked and they ran and, fle- and, 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 and fled and hid. I was going to say they ran and fled. But that word's not in the English language. <laughs> they ran and fled. Because here's the thing. Sin has marred our ability to live in our innocence. All right? Children are innocent in so much that they have not experienced the fullness of the sinfulness of the world. They are born into sin, so no one is innocent before God. 
but they have an innocence about them because of their purity. The shedding of innocent blood is destroying this innocence. And that's why God hates it. In short, the killing or the shedding of innocent blood is killing the God part of us. It's, it's stealing the God element from us, the innocence, the imago Dei. When the shedding of innocent blood or murder uh, takes place, it's, that is the, the target of, of that practice. I believe this is particularly why evil people specifically target the innocent. Can you give me a little bit more mic here? I'm, I'm, I'm starting to lose my voice, and I'm running out of water. Tyler, would you mind go get me some more water? I got, I got to go another hour, y'all. Oh, uh, no. See, I believe, I believe this is why. Here you go, Tyler. Thank you, bud. I believe this is exactly why innocent people are specifically chosen, because it satisfies the lust for power. Mandy and I watched just a dateline the other night of uh, the, the murder in Idaho, the murders in Idaho of the college kids. And, and the, I can't remember his name, and I, even if I did, I probably wouldn't say it just because he doesn't deserve attention. But, but his, his, his unique and specific predatory practice was most heinous in that, in that crime because it was, it was the, the, the epitome of evil. It was the epitome of, of the targeting of innocence, right? And, I, and again, I, I don't know these people. I don't know how innocent they were. But they were, for all practical purposes, entirely unconnected with the, with the killer. And so he hunted them. And we have, we, have, we have stories of how this manifests in our society. And it never ceases to amaze me the depth of the depravity of these people. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. He also hates wicked imaginations, a heart that devises wicked plans. Wicked imaginations are those that think of evil continually. That's what a wicked imagination is. It's not hard for us to imagine people who think of evil continually. In, in its raw form, evil gives us lots of examples of what this looks like in our society. We have stories of serial killers. We have story of drug manufacturers and distributors. We have sociopaths. We have the political types who use their positions to bring tyranny on others. We have this nonstop cascade of individuals whose hearts constantly devise wicked plans. Right? These minds never stop planning their next move. They never stop strategizing and organizing and scheming their evil agendas. They never stop devising wicked ideas that enable them to hurt others. Their thoughts and their plans are so self-centered that they don't consider, even stop to consider how it might hurt somebody else. They enjoy their time and devilish thought and they relish how deep their imaginations go into the pits of hell. These wicked minds, these wicked imaginations are dark. Their thoughts are dark. Their thoughts are cyclical. And their, do- their thoughts are continually depraved and have no life whatsoever in them. How could we have stories of depravity and brokenness like we have in our society from these levels of wickedness? God hates these wicked imaginations because they are unholy. In a word, it's the unholy nature of their thinking that is an affront to a holy God. 
Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that the Christian is to set their minds on the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and things that are worthy of praise. But because of the fallen nature of mankind, it is natural to think about the opposite. Because of our fallenness, it is natural for depravity to beget depravity. And when mankind practices these things, they work unholiness in our world. Thus, the wrath of God, Romans 1 says, is revealed against all wickedness. It's the unholy nature of it that God is offended by I mean, I, I, as a counselor, I deal with the, the ramifications of it. I know many of you have family members or friends who have fallen into the depravity of drug addiction and all kinds of other things because of somebody out there that's making money off of meth manufacturing and all these other things. They get caught up in it, and they get addicted to it, and their lives are broken and destroyed by it. And the people that are in the background, the little puppet masters that are just in the darkness, they don't care. The level of brokenness that they're causing. In addition to wicked imaginations, he joins wicked practitioners, feet that are swift in running to evil. Wicked practitioners are just that. They're those who work iniquity. They're the minds. If you will, if the, if the wicked imaginations are the mind, then the wicked practitioners are the hands and the feet. They are the ones who practice sin. Those who work iniquity are particularly in the crosshairs of God's wrath. Their work has been revealed. Their imaginations are confirmed. Their sins are clear. Those who, hand, who, who use their minds and their hands and their feet to practice these things that are contrary to God's word are the very ones who stand in judgment of God. Now, I know we don't like to preach this oftentimes in our modern, you know, feel-good kind of world. Even the church has gotten away from this, this theme of judgment. But if you are a worker of iniquity, you are in judgment of God. Your works will be revealed. Judgment of God will be just. And the destination to which you will be bound is sure. God hates those who practice iniquity because they destroy the peace in our world. I mean, to be be blunt, they they steal the world of peace. Ideally, God established a world that would live in peace with him and with each other. He established governments and leaders and judges to protect us against those who would steal it from us. Romans 13 is a great example of what God says the role of government is to do, is to punish evil. That's the role of government. I know I know we have, we the people of the United States, I know we have constitutions, I know we have all kinds of different forms of government, but God established government to punish evil. Why? Because wickedness and workers of iniquity steal peace from our world. Leaders of the home, the church, the community, and the nation are agents of God's peace in this world. They do so, they establish this peace by ridding it of those who would practice iniquity. 
And when these individuals become agents, and this is what we're seeing now in our trends across the world, when the very agents of God's peace become the, the individuals that steal peace themselves, then we have a particular kind of wickedness that only God can deal with. When, when governments, for example, when governments who are charged by God to establish peace by punishing evildoers, when they become the evildoers themselves, only God can fix that. Thus, God brings nations to rise and he brings them to ruin. And it's all contingent upon whether they practice the will of God for them. Sixthly, false witness. We're almost there. We're almost there. False witness who speaks lies specifically according to Solomon. A false witness is one who denies the truth. Now, to appreciate this, you have to understand the biblical understanding of a false witness, right? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That was the Old Testament standard for establishing truth. You wanted to make sure that an actual event happened. You get the witness of two or three people. You take it before a judge. They give their testimony and truth is established. Right? Sometimes at the expense of capital punishment. There were certain sins and crimes in the Old Testament that if two or three witnesses bore testimony that you did them, they would stone you to death. So goes without saying that the testimony of that witness was pretty significant, wasn't it? Especially if you were the one on trial. Amen? This theme is common in the New Testament as well. Matthew 18, 16, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Timothy 5, 19. The point is that in matters of personal, civil, or judicial consequence... The testimony of two or three was enough to confirm the truth. Thus, those who bore false witness to important matters were doing a serious injustice by lying. Right? Injustice permeated the judicial system with liars. God hates false witnesses because they undermine the integrity of the truth. They hate lies. God hates lies because it empties the truth of its power. He hates those that lie because they undermine the integrity of the truth. It's a serious affront to God. He does not tolerate this kind of behavior. Having the truth established is not just a matter of earthly consequence, but of one of heavenly consequence as well. Because we will have a testimony of God, the Son, Jesus, in our own trial before God who, if we are believers, has already atoned for our sin. We have been justified freely before God. But for an individual to give so little concern for the truth in the matters of another is not just a personal offense to that person, it's a personal offense to God because it undermines the integrity of the truth. Worse, giving false testimony at the expense of the truth is a crime, God says, that is worthy of judgment. And then lastly, number seven, one who sows discord among the brethren. I think this one resonates probably most commonly in our world today. I think it goes without saying that this is the one that we commonly see practice in our church institutions. Busybodies in the church. Busybodies are those who sow discord in the church. 
this final abomination, we find a particular kind of person who divides the people of God with their wagging tongues, their incessant boredom, and their intentional drama. People who don't have enough to do in the kingdom of God will busy themselves with the affairs of men. Amen? Let me say that one more time. Those who do not have enough to do in the kingdom of God will busy themselves with the affairs of men. They like it. It's, it's fun. It's fun to sow discord among the brethren. Thus, their fruits are of man. Division, discord, and dissension. Their behaviors are the pathetic kind that seek to divide the church into factions. Their words speak death and not life. Their actions, just fundamentally deplorable. Their desires are to stir up strife for the sake of their own amusement. What a sick mentality to stir stuff up and then sit back and enjoy it. Busybodies build sex in the mind, in, of, 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 of other individuals in the church of like-mindedness so that they can then blend in and sow their seeds of separation. They master their craft in such a way that they can mask their words in virtuosity and hide their deeds in nobility. Hey, I'm just watching out for the church by talking about every single thing that goes on or by making things up or by just, or by just gossiping or hearsay or whatever. And if they're ever called out, they cry victim and they further divide the body. They're not mature enough to say, yeah, you know what? My bad. I'm sorry. I, I didn't, I, I did, but I, but I'm sorry. And I, and I'm, but they can't do that. Why? Because they're egoists who seek glory for themselves by making themselves more important than they really are. And that's the truth about busybodies. They lack proper placement in the body of Christ, so they seek positions that are attained in all the wrong ways. I think we know the truth of this, don't we? We know the truth of this. God hates those who sow discord among the brethren because the fact is it destroys peace and unity among God's people. God's ideal for the church is not that we have people running around talking about each other and, and broken apart into different groups and sects and, 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 and different cliques or whatever word we want to use. The, the church is a, is a place that is designed to have a balance and equilibrium by the presence of God and the fellowship of his people. The work of busybodies, when the work of busybodies is established, all that's destroyed. That's one of the things that I have been most commendable about this church is that it is, it is unified. There is a spirit of peace. There is a spirit of unity. There is a spirit of oneness here. And you better believe that I'm going to do everything in my possible power to protect that. Because it's commendable. It's, no, it's noble. It's virtuous to actually be in a church that has peace. Because so many of them don't. So many of them are fighting and bickering about little bitty things that don't matter. And there's plenty of people fanning the flames with their words, with their social media accounts, with whatever. The church then becomes neither a place of peace nor unity. And without peace or unity in the kingdom of God's church, nothing gets advanced. Everything is delayed and churches fall apart. In fact, there's more done 
or rather undone in the house of God by busybodies to the expense of the Great Commission. Y'all, we're here, we're here to do two things. Worship God and advance the kingdom. Okay? Those are our two priorities. To worship God in all spirit and in truth and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's our calling. I personally don't have time for the rest. Nor do you. Nor does this church. We can't afford it. We can't afford to have that kind of mentality or that kind of selfishness or that kind of personalities at work. We can't afford it. So we have to be busy about worship and we have to be busy about the kingdom. As long as we're busy in the Lord's work, everything else will be added unto us. Amen? Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, and his righteousness. And all of those other things will be added unto you. That's our goal. That's our calling in the Lord. These seven things are reminders to us of the things God hates. Mark them and avoid them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Father, as we bring this message to a close, this sermon from your word to, a, to, a, to an end, I pray that, that your words are seeking to accomplish that which you will now. Father, in this very sanctuary and those online that are listening, Father, that, that they will hear your words come through, that we'll, we'll mark these abominations and that we'll avoid them at all costs. Father, that we will work to build up the kingdom rather than tear it down. Uh, Father, help us, empower us to be able to live this word Father, to be doers of it, not just hearers only. Father, I'm grateful for the fellowship that you've given us here at First Baptist. And Lord, as, as we work together in kingdom work, Father, may you bless our faith. May you bless our hands and feet. And may you be glorified by all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. And amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Say